We'll continue to look at combined cycle gas to provide baseload generation mm-hmm. and also to provide a backstop to the renewables that we are adding into the province as we green up the grid and uh, lower our carbon footprint in Saskatchewan. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring you different voices from the CEA team. Our featured discussion on today's podcast is with Mike Marsh, the president and CEO of Sask Power. But before we get to my conversation with Mike, I'm joined on the podcast by Julia Muggeridge, CEA's Director of Communications and Marketing, to talk about recent news. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. So, you got news for us. I have a few interesting pieces of news for you today. All right, so what's news? Well, robots could be integral to addressing deficiencies on transmission lines caused by climate change. And as you know, Francis, we're talking about climate change adaptation a lot with electricity companies across Canada right now. Yeah. So these R2-D2-like robots are fastened to live electrical lines. Do they look like R2-D2? <laughs> they, they actually do. I was looking at some oh, okay. photos of them online. Okay. Um, they're uh, fastened to live electrical lines, and they can work faster and more safely than human technicians. I should mention that as we draw closer to National Lineworker Appreciation Day on July 10th, uh, it goes without saying that these robots prevent falls and enhance safety for electrical workers across Canada. Cool. So Hydro-Quebec's actually been using these for years, yeah. and now these R2-D2-like robots can be found in seven different countries worldwide. Oh, no kidding. Very cool. All right. Anything else that caught your eye this week? Definitely. Um, an Alberta town, uh, it's actually called the Town of Redmond, is in the process of installing 2,700 solar panels on top of municipal buildings. This would make them the first Canadian city to rely sol- solely on solar power. power. This city is home to only 4,200 people, so it's almost a a solar panel panel person. person. (laughs) Um, NMAX is actually one of our member companies and is installing them um, on golf courses and at water treatment plants. Essentially, every municipal building in the city will have solar panels on them. Uh, The total price tag for this project is $2.8 million, Mm -hmm. and the town of Redmond is going to pay this off in 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, which brings me to my last story uh, related to NMAX. Gianna Manis, CEO of NMAX, is set to retire in 2020. And as you know, Frances, she sits on our board of directors, and she's been a really active voice on innovation and diversity. And under her leadership, I think NMAX has become a leader uh, in the electricity industry. And I know you've had her on the podcast before. Absolutely, yeah. Plug for plug for one of our earlier podcasts. It was a fascinating discussion, the one with uh, the one with Gianna. So one example of the work that she's done is NMAX was recently selected as a finalist in the Canada-UK Power Forward Challenge, which is a challenge that has been set out by Natural Resources Canada and the Mars Institute based in Toronto. Um, Canadian and UK utilities will build up, uh, they're teaming up with corporations to accelerate breakthrough innovations, and NMAX was just chosen as a finalist. Wow. Very exciting. That is very cool. 
And that's it for me today. That's terrific. Very interesting stuff. So from R2-D2 to innovation uh, to uh, one of our previous uh, podcast discussions. Thanks very much, Julia. You're welcome. Now let's listen to my conversation with Sask Powers President and CEO Mike Marsh, recorded earlier this spring in Washington in conjunction with our Washington Policy Forum. Mike Marsh, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Francis. So, Mike, one of the questions that I've been asking everybody that's come on the podcast is, what's the book that you're reading right now? Well, the book I'm reading right now is actually uh, a nonfiction book. It's a book by an author called Daniel Goleman. He's the he's the guy that wrote the the book on emotional intelligence, but his current book is called Focus, and it's all about trying to get the most out of people by focusing the attention that we all have in our individual brains to find alignment and and to make sure that we can achieve a common purpose. So when you can focus and harness that energy, uh, it's amazing what what can be accomplished. So have you finished or are you getting... I'm, I'm close to the end. I, I, just, I got a couple more chapters to go, but it's a it's a very fascinating read. And applicable? Well, very applicable. I mean, it's when you consider the workforces that we have in this industry, uh, the challenges that we are all dealing with as leaders to uh, try to engage our workforce, to try to make sure we have alignment uh, on our leadership teams, um, just understanding a little more about the, the issue around human behavior is very important. Great. So well, let's get into the, the, the sort of the meat of the, uh, the podcast here. Um, we're recording this podcast uh, late in the evening um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, in, uh, in April. Um, and one of the issues that, that always comes up when we're talking to policymakers um, in Washington and elsewhere, um, whenever SASC Power comes up, um, is carbon capture and, and storage. And, um, you know, we always talk about the Boundary Dam um, uh, as, a, as an example. It was the first ever, um, um, the first of, and now, you know, other people are moving into that space. But SASC Power was the, the first into that space. What do you think the future looks like now for, for carbon capture based upon the experience now that you've had with Boundary Dam? Well, Francis, you're right. Uh, we we developed that project actually starting about uh, nine years ago. 2010 is when we uh, first approved that station. Construction began in 2011. Uh, it reached commercial operation in the fall of 2014. So it's been operating four and a half years now. Uh, certainly first of its kind in, in the world when it comes to an integrated carbon capture facility on a conventional coal-fired power station. Mm-hmm. And we're very, very proud of the record that we have with that with that unit. Uh, it continues to operate well. It continues to um, take carbon out of the exhaust. What we found, though, in the last four years is the um, the number of new entrants into this space has, has not materialized the way uh, it was originally envisioned. Um, there's only been one other plant in the United States in Texas, uh, built. Uh, so when, when you only have one plant like ours, uh, the ability to attract new research and development, the ability to find economies of scale, the, the ability to begin to reduce the overall cost of carbon capture right. has just not materialized uh, the way it was originally uh, thought it would. So is that because the market 
um, changed so much in, in the past decade? Because well, well, natural gas is cheap now. Is that Was that part of the dynamic? Well, well I think that's the second part. I, I think the, the fact that natural gas prices have dropped uh, since we made that decision to go ahead with carbon capture, they've actually fallen uh, by by fifty percent, so they're half the price of what they were right. when we made the decision. And uh, the forecast back in the day were actually forecasting natural gas prices to go up. So, when the alternative combined cycle natural gas is uh, substantially less expensive than carbon capture mm-hmm. on a conventional coal unit, um, it does make the economics very difficult. So, with no new entrants and with the with the shift in natural gas price, it's it's created a just a whole new. Uh, dimension for for carbon capture. I, I know there's been a lot of activity on carbon capture in other industries, for the cement industry, mm-hmm. for example. Right. And now uh, many people are beginning to look at carbon capture for the natural gas uh, generation side. So combined cycle gas, um, even simple cycle gas units today may require carbon capture at some point in the future to right. meet further increasing regulation around emissions yeah. uh, on generation sources. So what uh, what does the future now look like for for Sask Power in terms of uh, in terms of planning your generation future in the context um, you know let's put the, the carbon capture uh, question aside, but increasing discussions about more regional integration. I know there was a there was a study that was undertaken by the Canada West Foundation. Yes, there was a uh, the Canada West Foundation actually did a, a study and, and issued a report looking at uh, transmission interconnection in the western provinces. So between British Columbia and Alberta, between mm-hmm. Manitoba and Saskatchewan, to try to move uh, large amounts of, of hydro, essentially renewable energy, into the two regions that have predominantly fossil fuel today. Mm-hmm. So it's an option we're looking at. We continue to look at a portfolio of options in the province of Saskatchewan. So we are, are about 75% fossil today, 40% of that is gas, uh, about 35 is coal. Mm-hmm. We have about 20% hydro and, and right now about 5% wind. Um, within about three years, we'll be tripling our, our wind capacity in the province, which is important as we, as we move to uh, green up our grid. And as retirements of the conventional coal fleet uh, occur, BD4, for example, will retire at the end of uh, 2021, and BD5, which is another 150 megawatt unit, will retire at the end of uh, 2024 mm-hmm. uh, under the current equivalency agreement um, that has yet to be uh, completed with the federal government, but we're optimistic that that will happen sometime in the next month or two. Right. We'll continue to look at uh, combined cycle gas to provide baseload generation mm-hmm. and also to provide a backstop to the renewables that we are adding into the province as we green up the grid and uh, lower our carbon footprint in Saskatchewan. So let's, um, let's, let's push the horizon further out. What about 2050? Um, and you know, 2030, the, the commitments that, that Canada has made are for a 30% reduction. Um, and on the electricity side, of course, it's going to be a lot more than that because, uh, you know, this is a sector that's, that's already at, at that point. But 2050 targets um, are, are targets that an 80% reduction by 2050. Uh, I know that isn't, you know, that isn't in any company's immediate plans. But, I mean, what could, could, what could that even look like from sort of the perspective of, of, uh, of Sask Power in Saskatchewan? Well, that's a very good question. I, you know, I think that's that's an issue that all utilities are are looking at uh, for 
us, we continue to look at scenarios out to 2050, certainly that might allow us a pathway mm -hmm. uh, to further carbon reductions. Um, beyond 2030, there's the potential for small modular reactors to be used in, in the province. Combination of, of SMRs together with uh, wind and solar uh, might provide uh, adequate baseload generation, plus take advantage of the intermittency of wind and solar for, uh, for further energy. This is something we're, we're looking at closely. Um, as you say, uh, you know, what that target is going to look like, uh, what regulations may be in place are uncertain at this time. 80% appears to be the number that's floating around. Right. And um, we think we, we can chart a course to get there mm -hmm. in, uh, in our province and uh, in the company. Uh, but again, um, coming off coal and moving to alternative sources of uh, generation is, uh, is certainly uh, more expensive uh, than other, let's say, hydro-rich provinces are, are going to experience. Um, so both Alberta and, Sask and Saskatchewan have the same general hurdle in, in mm -hmm. place in front of us here. Right. So a 2050 world of, of a 50%, or sorry, an 80% reduction in, in GHGs is going to mean more than just greening the electricity uh, electricity system. It's going to mean um, massive electrification as well, right? We'd, we'd be talking transportation. We'd be talking industrial processes. We'd be we'd be looking at HVAC. Um, that's a that's a that's a pretty significant challenge, isn't it? Well, it is in Saskatchewan. Uh our, our sector, the SAS Power, uh, accounts for about 20% of the GHG emissions today. In the province, we emit about 75 uh, megatons of CO2 uh, as a province. Uh, the transportation and ag sector, uh, as well as the oil and gas and industrial sector, emit um, a significant amount uh, of uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions as well. Um, electrification of the transportation sector is something that um, will certainly have an impact on our distribution grid and our and our capacity as we look forward. Um, but it has great potential, certainly, in reducing emissions um, in a, in a very big way. Um, we're looking through the through the province's resiliency plan on uh, further emissions in the ag sector mm -hmm. and in the industrial and oil and gas sector. Uh, we're working on a few projects right now. Uh, regarding flare gas emissions in the province, where we would take that flare gas from uh, oil wells and uh, capture it, and uh, that would be converted into electricity through mm -hmm. generators. Right. Um, so that's we're starting small, um, and uh, but the potential for flare gas emissions uh, could be in the order of um, two to three hundred megawatts uh, on the province uh, as a whole. So mm -hmm. you know it's not insignificant. And it, it reduces emissions from that sector. It provides a fuel to, to uh, SAS power so that we can generate electricity. Right. We'll do that through uh, independent power producers. And uh, we continue to work with uh, oil and gas companies. Um, in Saskatchewan, we have an entity called the First Nations Power Authority, mm -hmm. which is actively engaged in looking at renewable projects as well as uh, flare gas projects. And uh, we look forward to the projects that they will bring along in the next few years. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, collaboration with First Nations. Let's uh, let's let's go down that track because I I know it's something that is of increasing importance for 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 your company. What does the, the the future look like in terms of collaboration with First Nations on on energy and electricity? Well, I think it looks promising. Um, 
almost all uh, First Nations communities, of course, are, are looking at renewable energy, wind and solar as um, an economic development opportunity. Uh, as we look to further um, integrate distributed energy resources around the province, it, it would seem to be a natural fit. There's 74 First Nations communities in the province of Saskatchewan. Right. Uh, the First Nations Power Authority was set up uh, between the province, um, the First Nations, and, and SAS Power to, to be the vehicle that would undertake development of these projects, um, to work with First Nations communities to uh, and to engage uh, wind and solar developers uh, to uh, bring a project to life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we're very close on a on a couple projects right now, and we're looking forward in the next few months to um, getting uh, more um, certainty around a, a, a couple projects on the solar side and uh, certainly on the flare gas side. So it looks very promising. In the future, I think there's other communities that are certainly looking uh, to be involved in the power sector. Um, it's a very important. Uh, you know, from a couple of perspectives, I think uh, a lot of communities view um, renewables as a way to provide energy for their own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, the province certainly has the ability uh, with the wind and solar regimes that potentially exist in Saskatchewan to be able to generate um, significant amounts of energy when the wind blows and when the sun shines, of course. Right. But enough that might uh, allow uh, some of these communities to uh, achieve a certain level of um, uh, clean energy production for their own use on, on the, in their own communities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's of interest to them right now. What are the, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned uh, as you've been uh, maturing your, uh, your approach at Task Power to, to working with uh, First Nations communities? Because it's, it's been a kind of a voyage that, that you've been on. Well, certainly there's been learnings for us and I think learnings uh, for the communities as well. I, I will say they all have, uh, you know, different levels of, of experience as, as we look at these different projects, but they are very capable in um, developing uh, the competence that they need in order to uh, work through some of the contractual issues and, and uh, some of the technical issues that are going to be needed. And I think, you know, as a matter of, um, just as a matter of, you know, the way the world is developing, uh, Saskatchewan right now is, I believe, over 15% of the population is First Nations today, right. uh, First Nations and Métis. And that's only going to grow into the future. Mm-hmm. So as we look forward, um, if there's a, a, an opportunity uh, to engage them on some of these projects, I think it only, only fits well. Um, the First Nations land and the traditional territories, uh, Treaty 4 and Treaty 6 in Saskatchewan, um, occupy uh, a fair amount of the provincial land. And there's opportunities in all parts of the province for First Nations communities to engage with us on, on many of these renewable projects. And so we look forward to the next few years. Mm-hmm. Where might, where might that be if we, again, cast our minds way <coughs> out into the future in 2040, 2050? Well, 2040 and 2050 is, you're, you're getting out there a little ways. And, you know, I would suspect that we are going to have more aggressive targets than we, than we do today. And just, just so the audience knows, uh, although the provi- federal government, excuse me, uh, has set an overall target of 30% uh, emissions reductions from 2005 levels by 2030, 
Uh, SAS Power has set a target of achieving 40% uh, mm -hmm. emissions reductions from 05 levels by 2030. And we, we know that we're on track to achieve that, and we will. Uh, out to 2040 and to 2050, um, we honestly uh, know that uh, on the path we're on, we'll be in a, a very good position to achieve uh, significant reductions that will approach that 80%. Uh, target, but it depends on a number of scenarios. It depends on load growth in the province, like every jurisdiction. True. Um, currently, we, I think we've had one of the highest load growths of any province in Canada for the last number of years. Uh, two years ago, we had over 6% six, 6 on an annual basis mm. uh, load growth. Right mm -hmm. now, we're currently tracking about two. Um, but the rise of distributed energy resources could change that equation. Right. And that's the, that's the key thing people have to recognize. So what, what we traditionally plan for in our models um, may not come to pass uh, if more people self-generate. That just right. means we don't have to generate as much. So that's, that's the scenario that we uh, have to prepare for. We have to be uh, adaptable to and, and be flexible in our, in our policies and the way we go forward in the marketplace uh, to be able to adapt to that change. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, one of the questions that that I've asked uh, other people on this podcast is is about um, all around cybersecurity, but I'm not going to ask you about cybersecurity. I want to go somewhere where I haven't gone with uh, with uh, some of these other conversations, and, and that's safety. Uh, mm. And the reason why is because you've been building uh, uh, such a strong safety culture at Sask Power. Um, what are the what are the, the what's been the the secret to kind of inculcate that that uh, relentless focus on safety that you have at the company, and what are the sorts of things that you know we can learn from that? And what are the things that you've learned from that? Well, you know, safety is very important to me. As you know, I was I headed up the uh, uh, safety task group for uh, CEA for a number of years, yeah. and uh, got to know a number of people from around the country. Uh, safety has always been important to me in my role, my my operational roles at SAS Power. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I will tell you that I think it, it comes down to just a desire to make sure that employees are safe. Mm -hmm. um, we did have a, a couple of very unfortunate incidents in, in 2012. And then in 2014, we suffered a fatality in the company. And it is those incidents that uh, I think just dig deep into every employee in a, in a utility when something like that happens. And we committed at that point uh, to turn things around, to try to raise awareness, uh, to try to make an environment, a work environment that's safe for people to talk about what's not working and what needs to be done to change things. And I think uh, utilities and other industrial facilities maybe have suffered from that environment where uh, it wasn't safe for younger workers, for example, to speak up if they didn't think mm -hmm. things were, were being done in a safe manner. Now, we certainly tried to create that uh, environment, that safe environment where people can speak up without retribution, uh, create an environment where um, understanding uh, the hazard and risk assessment for, for a job plan uh, is, is done well in advance, uh, to create an environment where uh, being aware of, uh, well, that, that concept called situational awareness, where, right. where folks are always mindful 
of the position they're in and and uh, the point that they're in in any job plan or work plan mm-hmm. um, and to be able to say stop if they don't feel things are going properly so being aware and mindful of as the job is developing and um, I, I think it's made a significant difference and obviously we're seeing it in, a, in much improved safety performance mm-hmm. and it's something that we want to keep our eye on and make sure that our leadership uh, in the company and uh, every employee in the company, you know, continues to work hard at this. Uh, we all know that it's important. Uh, nobody wants anybody to get hurt. And uh, we certainly don't want to experience uh, a fatality like we had in 2014 mm-hmm. ever again. Right. So, Mike, the, the final question, and, and this is something that I've asked other people as well. I'm, I'm curious about where people turn to for their information. Um um, so the question I've, I've been asking is, um, the first thing in the morning when you want to get up to speed in terms of what's happening in, in your world and get ready for your day at Sask Power, where do you turn to uh, to, uh, to to get your information? Well, you know, funny enough, I, I turn on the Weather Channel, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, and there's a good reason for that. There's a good reason for that yeah. because you, you never know what's what's happening. So I get a quick snapshot of the, of the weather. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, at SAS Power, we have a good outage application. Uh, I'll I'll check the phone in the morning and see if there's been outages overnight and, right. and where they've occurred in the province. And and where and the reason they've occurred is more often than not because of the weather. More often than not because yeah. of the weather. Okay. And yeah. and um, you know in the in the past few months, for example, we've had warm weather with fog, uh, warm weather with mist. We had a significant outage back in December of 2018. Uh, which resulted in a widespread outage in the southeast corner of the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a result of warm, humid air hanging in an area and causing frost buildup on the lines and equipment that uh, eventually caused uh, shield wire to come down and, oh, and okay. broke structures on the transmission line. And wow. We were out for 13 hours in a good part of the province. And uh, those events are not not unusual for Saskatchewan, but they don't usually last for several days like this one did. Mm-hmm. The sun comes out, the frost falls off and uh, you know life goes on so weather uh, we pay close attention to the weather in the province we have very cold winters with lots of wind Um, we're heading into summer storm season in the next couple months Uh, and we know that uh, winter storms the potential for uh, tornadoes in western Canada the potential Mm -hmm. for plow winds um, you know to upset the grid and uh, and cause widespread damage because of trees and down lines is uh, is very real. So uh, yeah, we I, I always pay attention to the weather. That's so the first first the, thing is the weather. First thing is the weather. All right, Mike. Thank you very much for participating in the podcast. Really appreciate it. Very, you know. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Hi, my name is Alex Kent. I'm a policy advisor at CEA's transmission and distribution team. Today, I'm going to talk about the private virtual network operator PVNO application that CEA has made on behalf of its members to the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Commission. We are asking for regulatory change into how MNCs, mobile network codes, are allotted to uh, organizations within Canada. Right now they can only be given to organizations that will offer service to the public, the big three carriers for example. We're asking for a change that allows the recognition of different public goods that are not just delivering cell service. 
so that our members can own an MNC and operate their own wireless networks for their own internal use. This would be good for members because it would allow increased security by having a private-only network. It would allow redu reductions in costs from being able to deploy LTE technology throughout the entire supply chain, which is uh, secure, cheap, um, relatively easy to find parts for. It's just a very good system to use for telecommunications. It would also, and this is an important one, keep any member from being locked into a service contract with one of the current cellular providers, stop them from being locked in. The ability to have an MNC means that you can move your traffic from one spectrum network to the other. If I can move my spectrum traffic from one network to another, I can then say that if one network is experiencing an outage, I can move to the other one. An example of this is when there's ever a natural disaster, like a tornado or a flood, and one cell provider's tower is damaged and inoperable. This can cause a loss of service to the CA members, the Electric Utility Critical Infrastructure for Canada, but if they have the ability to seamlessly move traffic to a still operable network, they are able to maintain service and improve safety and emergency response time. This is only one application of the PVNO. The ability to move from one network to the other to find whichever one is best operating allows them to improve communications capability to all their field assets. These are the devices that monitor and manage the grid itself, the transformers, the meters, the switches, everything. And so if you have the better ability to communicate with those elements, those field devices, you can then have a finer degree of control, which is especially important in this emerging DER, Decentralized Energy Resource era, including EVs. So if you're able to follow those, if you're able to manage those, if you're able to collect data on those in real time with high fidelity, you're able to operate the grid better. Uh, in our application to the CRTC, we boil all of those down into the smart grid. This is really, or I should say the PVNO is really a system about having the ability to communicate with the smart grid. The chief benefit for the PVNO for customers are better management of the smart grid, which will allow DER EVs to be managed uh, more effectively. It also will allow service restoration following extreme weather events like storms or floods. And there's also a safety component for the public during those restoration events. Also, because our members fully anticipate that there will be some cost savings to this PVNO, they would be able to transfer cost savings to either offset future rate increases or decrease current fees in some regard. This is an initiative that is about delivering better services at better costs to the customer. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor, invite you to tune in for future discussions, and invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.